The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. And this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. It's Thursday, July 14th. Since the founding document that led to the invention of Bitcoin first appeared in 2008, Bitcoin's true believers have adopted a philosophy that resembles one for all and all for one, or at least all who believe in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is often mentioned as a means to improve financial inclusion or to allow people who are oppressed by their governments to maintain or reclaim a sense of freedom. In Bitcoin, everyone's equal, or so the theory goes. But does that theory match the reality of the ecosystem? What we did was a systematic origin study of Bitcoin, telling the story of how this came to be in a very, very specific period. That's data scientist Alyssa Blackburn. On today's episode, Alyssa and Dr. Erez Lieberman Eden, an associate professor of molecular and human genetics at Baylor College of Medicine, join me to discuss their research into who controlled Bitcoin from the very earliest days. Alyssa, Erez, what a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining the pod today. Thank you for having us on. I don't often get to, you know, talk to folks doing the type of research that you all have been doing. And I get to talk to them even less frequently when it comes to, you know, applying that research into the wild world of Bitcoin. So let's jump right in. Tell me a little bit more about your paper and your findings and why you have found this to be such a captivating line of inquiry. Oftentimes in crypto, you hear from kind of two camps of people. The first are kind of classic economists who do these first principle analyses. Um, And there's a variety of outcomes in that. You have people saying maybe it's, I I don't really like this term, but like kind of a scam, kind of a Ponzi scheme. There's There's not a there there. And the second group tends to be from people who are long on crypto, crypto enthusiasts. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but both of these are kind of like a priori analyses. We are scientists. We are studying the phenomenon of crypto and trying to characterize the space, trying to study the dynamics of the space and the incentive structure in the space. Mm -hmm. So it's a different kind of analysis that we do. And we do not invest in this space as a group, as scientists. So I kind of want to differentiate our work here from kind of other conversations that kind of get said about this. Got it. So what we did was what we sought to do was a systematic origin study of Bitcoin, telling the story of how this came to be in a very, very specific period. We kind of refer to this as the incipient period of Bitcoin. It's bookended by the launch and when Bitcoin reached price parity with the US dollar. In retrospect, this at the time, this was not at all a foregone conclusion. This is true. It was a truly incredible story to us. It's one of the most exciting stories of the interface of kind of economics and technology. 
And what we wanted to do was paint a very detailed data-driven picture of what this looked like, who was involved, what did it look like, what are the dynamics like, what is the motivation for this space, what can we learn from this, and then what can we kind of translate and can we make this a serious academic story? Mm -hmm. Can we get beyond kind of this like niche crypto conversation and kind of have it in a wider academic rigorous space? And what did you find? First of all, is we did a lot of address linking in this space. We used methods that may be called data leakage, fingerprinting to kind of link these addresses together. And there are a couple assumptions that we were able to make in this very, very early period that made this process just specific to kind of this time horizon. So we were able to recapitulate a lot of the early actors. And then once we had these users, we were able to do analyses. We were able to see how the community changed over time. We were able to trace transactions through the network. Mm -hmm. We were able to see what the reality of the system was like in contrast to what conversations about the system was like and to kind of explore the gap between those two things. The significance of address linking is the following, right? If you look at, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain designed to be uh, afford identity masking via pseudonymity, it's the individual records relate to addresses, pseudonyms. Now, of course, an address is not a very interesting thing to study on some level. An address has no incentives. An address makes no decisions, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to study the sociology of Bitcoin, if you want to study the economics of Bitcoin, you have to be able to translate from the space of addresses, from collections of addresses to people and the choices that people are making and the ways in which people are interacting with one another. So that's the role that address linking plays. In this study, the address linking is not there for the purpose of like, gotcha, you know, I, I figured out who you are. In fact, you know, the goal of the study was not at all to dox anyone. Right. It's orthogonal. It's of no interest to us. Uh, but the goal of the address linking is to translate the blockchain into terms that make it possible to ask questions about sociology and economics and, and game theory and all kinds of scientific phenomena that Bitcoin can be and all kinds of scientific phenomena that Bitcoin can illuminate. And Alyssa, one of the things that you kind of talk about is the like the necessity of persistence in trying to get or arrive at those kinds of, you know, like insights or sociological conclusions that Eris is describing. Can you say just a little bit more about how that worked? Sure, sure. So the reality is humans are responsible for coin movement yep. on the blockchain. Humans tend to do things differently than computers. Humans like round numbers. Humans like consolidating their gains. There are these little pieces of data. Um, we call them data leakage. Some blockchain forensics firm may call them like fingerprinting. But there are certain behaviors that give insight as to who is moving the coins. Mm -hmm. And if you put these all these little pieces of data together, what you get are links between addresses. Mm -hmm. And when you have multiple links of different types of leakage from different data sources, in aggregate, what you can do is put together clusters of addresses with a high level of accuracy. And so what that means in practice is you basically figured out who the first 64 miners were that were responsible 
Yes, it means we put together the very early mining agents who mined a lot of coin. Um, the number 64 comes from what is called the Satoshi coefficient, where it's the number required for a majority attack mm -hmm. to be greater than 50%. So I want to clarify that that 64 is over 25 months. And frequently, at any given moment in time, actually a very far, far smaller number are actually the number of people actively mining and maintaining the network at any given point in time. Got it. So it was a very small community. What was the most interesting, perhaps like behavioral element of this community or, or maybe something that neither of you were expecting to find? So one, one thing that we frequently point out in the paper is we do not find evidence of people attacking the chain. Mm -hmm. And one, Satoshi originally described this currency in the initial email to the cryptographic lesser in the initial white paper, on the original Bitcoin website, and frequently on the forums, as not relying on a third party, as being decentralized and trustless, mm -hmm. and as being anonymous. And some opinions on the perceived anonymity of Bitcoin have changed over time. I mean, probably people who are very, very familiar with the Bitcoin protocol now would not describe it as anonymous. They would describe it as pseudonymous. Yep. But Bitcoin was designed, at least partially, to have these pseudonyms to effectuate some level of privacy. Bitcoin was also designed to not rely on a third party. But what we find frequently, because you have these very large miners, not many mining at one time, there's frequently in a miner that's functioning as the trusted arbiter of the network. We find about 5% of blocks mined during this period are mined in majority streaks, where one miner does in fact have majority control of the network. So what I'm hearing you say is that is the literal opposite of the idea of decentralization when there isn't supposed to be a single centralized entity that's making those kinds of calls. Yes, exactly. And what, what I want to focus on here is the gap between the computational ideals and how this was described and the actual state of the system. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's a little bit easy to say now, well, this is a 10-year-old data set. What are you telling me about the blockchain today? And what I want to highlight is the tension in that gap. I only studied these two years. I cannot tell you like a blanket statement about the system today, and I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. But I will say that at this time, that decentralized trustless mechanism was not functioning. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's also worth noting, right, that like today we think, oh, Bitcoin, it's worth a trillion dollars. And if it's not worth a trillion dollars, you know, there's a bit of a temptation to be like, oh, you know, before it was worth a trillion dollars, it kind of wasn't worth anything. Look, you know, there's no doubt that the value of, you know, Bitcoin and its importance have changed greatly mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. There's no doubt that the state of that community has changed greatly over the last 10 years. At the same time, it's worth noting that by the end of the period that we examine this 25-month-long period, uh, Bitcoin is a functioning currency, right? The end of a 25-month-long period at this point WikiLeaks has already invested in Bitcoin to get around the uh, payment blockade, the financial blockade that was enacted against it by the governments of the world. Mm -hmm. It's after the Electronic Frontier Foundation is starting to solicit donations in Bitcoin. Um, it's after Bitcoin transactions start. There's a market price for Bitcoin that's a dollar. Um, it is uh, coincident with the launch of the Silk Road. 
you know, which became, you know, a massive online black market denominated in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So it was at this point, was it what it is today? It was not. But was it functioning as a currency? Yes. We'll be right back with more from Alyssa Blackburn and Dr. Erez Lieberman-Eden. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I also want to point out the importance of studying the difference between the sort of ideals that mm-hmm. you're hoping a cryptocurrency can achieve and the reality of what it does achieve, uh, which can be quite different. Not every cryptocurrency is as long in the tooth as Bitcoin, right? If you look at other cryptocurrencies, you know, you look at Luna, Terra, UST, that's an example of a cryptocurrency that's only a couple years old. In that period of time, it became clear that there were significant, you know, and especially recently, it's become very clear that there were significant deviations between the ideals, what people said their intentions were, and, you know, the reality of how that community worked, the reality of, you know, even the attention of the founder and founders of that community. I think a measured response to this is not to say that the sky is falling and this implies, you know, utter catastrophe for Bitcoin. That wouldn't be a measured response, but it also wouldn't be a measured response to say that, that this period, because it was 10 years ago, can't teach us valuable lessons for Bitcoin and for other cryptocurrency communities. We kind of use the term a little bit informally, internally, of like stress testing a cryptocurrency ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Bitcoin is far and away the most popular with the highest market cap. But the reality is there are a lot of young, you know, crypto ecosystems that perhaps have not been as tested as thoroughly. And there likewise may be a gap between how they're being described, how the founders may describe them and the actual state of the system. And I think it's kind of important to go into this kind of space with some degree of healthy skepticism. Alyssa, in your description of, you know, your attempts to even get to the point of being able to ask questions, you described some challenges that you encountered, like getting kicked off of your university network because they thought that you were mining mining crypto. If, if there are other academics out there who are hopefully listening to this podcast and thinking, I too would be very interested in engaging in some deep dives into the stuff, what's one thing that you would tell them? That's interesting. I mean, frankly, the data is all public. I mean, if you have enough compute power, you have like a graph database, anybody can honestly get started. It's public data, or at least the parts that, I mean, we we assessed. But what, what you said actually made me think of something else. And in those uh, frustrations that are kind of like bureaucratic in nature, it made me think of kind of the uh, information asymmetry out there between people who are very, very familiar with Bitcoin and the client and the protocol and those who are less familiar with the client and the protocol, but may still even be in the crypto space. 
And I think that's something that we are trying to address, Mm -hmm. kind of that junction and like have a better seal there between kind of taking this space seriously as an academic, an incredibly rich sociological data set and not necessarily require you to be a Bitcoin software developer in order to kind of engage in conversations here. Mm -hmm. But in terms of getting involved in this space, I mean, I think there's just a significant startup cost in terms of information. Mm -hmm. It's, It's hard to simply begin. You have to know how this works. You have to know the use cases of it. I mean, I, and I think academics are free to reach out to us, actually, if there's kind of interest in this area where we're happy to have those types of conversations. It can be tricky for academics to do this sort of work. Like a great example is, you know, start looking at this data set. It's, you know, it's it's a large data set and you want to analyze it. So good, good thing is you're academic. You have these big computer clusters and resources available through the university. So Alyssa starts to analyze the data. And, you know, within short order, she's thrown off the cluster and banned because they see, you know, the word Bitcoin is sort of associated with her code. And they say, oh, you must be, and you're using all this compute, you must be Bitcoin mining. Uh, Alyssa was never able to prevail on them that she could possibly have any other interest in Bitcoin other than to mine it. So then we were actually in worse shape now because you have this massive data set and you don't have access to all the clusters you usually use. So uh, we actually got a computer dedicated to this, which we called Hail Mary, since we thought the odds were perhaps against us. (laughs) So there are challenges. Look, there's challenges to approach this from from the academic sector. But I also want to highlight that for the reasons that Alyssa pointed out at the beginning, right, you know, you have a lot of people with a lot of really strong views, but there's a real need for folks who, you know, don't have financial interest in the matter. Mm -hmm who are work in the public interest in the way that scientists do, taking data and looking at the data and digesting the data and drawing lessons uh, from that data in the public interest. And so I actually think that this is an extraordinary opportunity for scientists. Alyssa, is Hail Mary still running? Hail Mary was actually cannibalized into one of our other clusters. <laughs> but in theory... She's she's a node in one of our other computational clusters now. We're gonna probably need to to re-separate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Another machine. I don't know if you have any proposals (laughs) or if if any of your listeners have proposals as to what to name that machine, but we're looking. Okay, great. I will. We will. This is our first question to our audience. What should these two scientists name their next computer for their next research project? Send us your answers to crypto at Bloomberg. Right. What is it? Computy McComputerface? Is that? I feel like that, that one's played out. You know? Yeah, that's, that's, that's over. That's over. <laughs> yeah, that's All like right. 2019. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. sorry. Sorry. I'm dating myself. <laughs> well, amazing. Thank you both for, you know, sharing your your time and your research interest and just giving our, our listeners the opportunity to hear a little bit more of like the technical underpinnings. And as you describe the gap that exists between theory and reality that is, you know, so often overlooked or at least less well understood. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on and giving us a chance to talk about our work a little bit. Thanks so much. You can find Alyssa on LinkedIn and on her website, and you can find Eras on Twitter. He is at Eras at Eras. That is E-R-E-Z-A-T-E-R-E-Z. 
Don't forget, if you have suggestions for what they should name their next computer, send us a note to crypto at Bloomberg.net. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, every day around the world, the reporters and editors who work on crypto at Bloomberg wake up, often at the crack of dawn, and start figuring out how we'll tackle the biggest and most important news events of the day. Crypto is a 24-7 asset class. It doesn't stop trading, and it doesn't take holidays. So it's our job to assess both the big trends and the small moments, and to figure out how those translate into stories and, of course, podcast episodes. On the next episode, you'll get to meet three of Bloomberg's crypto editors, folks who are making decisions all day long about how we approach this asset class. You'll hear from Beth Williams and Dave Litka, who are both based in New York, and from Philip Lagerkranzer, who's based in Zurich. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, and this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email your questions, comments, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. And you'll find us on Twitter at Crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergalina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producer is Sharon Barrero. Associate producer is Ty Butler. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.